I think jazz is only for those that have no choice. Uh, I think if you're a young man and you're entertaining thoughts of becoming a brain surgeon or a jazz tenor man, I'd go with the brain surgery, you know what I mean? <laughs> I am. I, I've been one of the most fortunate musicians, I guess, in the, in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, most of the things I did, I did with people I enjoyed doing them with. Most of the music I was involved with, I, I got great enjoyment out of, and I'm still doing I still do it. Welcome to Jazz Backstory. My name is Monk Rowe. And we just heard from saxophonist Phil Woods and trumpeter Joe Wilder with contrasting comments on living a life in jazz. I believe episodes 7 and 8, collectively titled A Slice of the Jazz Life, will, in the words of Lester Young, ring a bell with you. Think of these two episodes as a smorgasbord of jazz anecdotes ranging from poignant to ludicrous. First up is the celebrated pianist George Shearing in conversation with his dear friend, vocalist Joe Williams. Born in England in 1919, Mr. Shearing was blind from birth and gained early experience playing in a band of unsighted musicians. When you hear George vocalize a swish, swish, swish sound, try and picture a tuxedoed conductor whipping an extra-long baton through the air. From March 1996, recorded in New York City, here are George and Joe. George, I've often wondered how um, an Englishman like you uh, comes to the point uh, you are with the music and, and the legacy and the, the, the history of the music and to understand it so well and to go to innovations of your own from where you came from relating to this music. How did you get to this music? I want to know. Uh, the jazz, that good sound and the thing that you, that you give us all over. I was brought up on Jimmy Lunsford. Oh! <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh. Oh, man. Uh, there was an old blind band in 1937. Mm. 15 musicians, 15 blind guys taught to be musicians from being chair cakers, basket, chair cakers, basket makers, and... Uh, who? What? They, they were chair cakers. They cane chairs. Oh. They made baskets. Oh. And they were taught to play instruments and be musicians. And the scores were done in Braille. Oh, man. We had uh, Lunsford Stratosphere. <laughs> Benny Carter's uh, Nightfall. Oh, my God. Do you have his sleep, too? Yeah, we, we had the, all the, 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 the Braille charts, and I'm the only one that didn't need it, and I'd pick it up by ear right away. The theme song with the band, by the way, was I'll See You In My Dreams. Oh, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> and the only sighted, fully sighted man was a man named Claude Bampton, who's kind of a semi-professional band leader in England. And he had this huge baton, you know, 
I'll see you in my dream. Mm. One night, you know, blind people always have to set up in a theater a little bit earlier than the side. It takes us a bit longer. And Claude said, okay, fellas, you ready? One guy said, no, just a minute. Lost my eye. His glass eye had fallen out, oh. rolled across the stage, and there's 15 blind guys down on the floor. Oh, wait a minute, George. I, I kid you not, this is the God's honest truth. 15 blind guys down the floor looking for this eye. And you they found it? They found it. <laughs> they didn't massacre it at all. They found it. He put it in. I'll see you. I love Joe's reaction to the eye rolling across the stage. Oh, wait a minute, George. Like Fisherman's Tales, musician anecdotes evolve over time. We'll call it jazz lore. Although I'm not suggesting that the rolling eye incident was a fabrication. Joe Williams graciously offered his support to our oral history project when it began in 1995. He also interviewed bassist Milt Hinton. Here they are chatting about Milt's introduction to the big time with Cab Calloway. Try and imagine the south side of Chicago, 1936. And Cap Kettleway had to come back east uh-huh. without a bass player. Uh-huh. And Bud Johnson's brother, Keg Johnson, Keg. was in Cap's van and he said, well, look, check out Milt Hinton if you're going to Chicago. Uh-huh. He's down to the three deuces with Zulia Singleton right. and Art Tatum oh, and Lee Carter. I'm down there with them guys. $35 a week, the best I job know. in town. I know. And that's the, the deuces truth. was at that That's time. right. That's where it was, the deuces. Yeah, broadcasting. That's too. right. And, and uh, Fletcher Henderson was at the Grand Terrace, $35 a week with yeah. John Kirby on base. Uh, 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 player. Roy Elridge. Roy Elridge? Yeah, and Shoeberry. 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 And they always look yeah. for a jam session. They yeah. got to they got through the Grand Terrace. They'd come down to the Three Deuces and jam with us. Right. So Kev came down to the Three Deuces, and, and he saw the band down there. And he never said a word to me. He was all dressed up in his big cool kid coat and mm-hmm. that derby. And when he walked in, all the people, that's Kev. <laughs> he walked in, he walked over to Zooty. He said something to Zooty, he says, how's that bass player? So we said, he's okay, that kid's okay. So he said, can I have him? He says, we said, yeah, you can have him. Nobody asked me nothing. Uh-huh. Zooty yeah. just gave me the cab. Sure, that's right. <laughs> Zooty said, kid, you gone? I said, I'm going where? He said, Cab, just ask me for you. And they knew all this stuff. Cab, just ask me for you. Yeah. You're gone. You're gone. I had, to call you my mo- <laughs> I had to call my mother. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. Called my mama and said, look, I got this job. And I got to leave in the morning at 9 o'clock. Mm. And she had a little canvas bag with a clean silver underwear. Uh-huh. And I had this little gabardine bicycle suit. Uh-huh. And got to the South Street Station, <laughs> got on that bench, bench there. She didn't give you a little brown bag take too? Yeah, well, she had the, the little chicken, she wanted my chicken fried. Got a little fried chicken. And, then, yeah. and, and I get on, this, get on the, the, the South Street Station. I'd never been on a Pullman in my life, Joe. Mm. You know, I didn't come from Mississippi on no Pullman. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> I get on this Pullman. And I had all these big musicians on there. There's Doc Cheatham, Jay oh, Johnson, oh. Foots Thomas, all these giants, you know. And I said to Ken, Ken Johnson got me the gig. He recommended me. And I said to Ken, I said, Ken, I didn't ask Ken about no money or nothing. I said, he just told me to be here at 9 o'clock. He said, everybody in this band makes $100 a week. I almost oh, faded. I almost faded. <laughs> I should have been a millionaire after two months. 
Well, and sure enough, you are. <laughs> 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 Oh but then ben Wilson, ben Wilson was Joe, got on late Joe. Oh, Lord. And I, I was I was weighed about 109 pounds, soaking mm. wet. And Ben Wilson staggered through the men's room and looked at me standing there being introduced to the band. Yeah. And he said, not who is that? He said, what is that? It was, and <laughs> talk about me. Yeah. And Cam said, that's the new bass player. He said, a new what? <laughs> I said, I'll never like him as long as I live. Uh. He turned out to be my dearest friend. <laughs> Jazz has unwritten rules of etiquette dating back to the early days in New Orleans. One prominent rule, band leaders don't steal sidemen from one another. Definitely bad form. Cab Calloway asked Zuddy Singleton if he could have his bassist, and Zuddy said, go ahead and take him. Apparently, the etiquette did not include asking the musician in question if they even wanted to go. Mill Tinton stayed with Cab Calloway for 15 years, went on to become one of the most loved and recorded musicians in jazz and popular music, as well as a highly skilled and respected photographer. I should add that Joe Wilder, George Shearing, Joe Williams, and Mill Tinton all received honorary degrees from Hamilton College. If you look at the December 2021 Downbeat Readers Poll, you will find the number one spots in the categories of Big Band, Album of the Year, Composer, and Arranger are all occupied by one Maria Schneider. Maria has been a creative force in jazz since 1988 and shared a fascinating story of her journey from the sticks of Minnesota to New York City and a Grammy Award-winning career. You know, when that woman, Mrs. Butler, moved to Wyndham, I was five years old, and my parents invited her to come up to our house for dinner, and after dinner, she sat down at the piano and played, and I remember she played like this classical thing, it, actually something I'd recognized from, from my mother's records, and then she started playing stride jazz, and I immediately could feel that there was something in that that wasn't the same as the other thing. Mm -hmm. I remember recognizing somehow the difference between pop and classical at that moment. And, but the personality that came through her, she, she had red hair, she was flamboyant, she was eccentric, she wore bright green moo-moos and purple slippers, and you know, she was just intense, and the intensity came through the music. She was like Dorothy Donegan, and when she would play, she'd be laughing uh -huh. and go accidentally go off the end of the piano, almost <laughs> Victor Borga style, uh -huh. but such technique, but soul, you know, yeah. and that thing for me was just so incredibly important in the music, and so when I went into my own music and I started playing, for me it was like fantasy, you know, I would play something and I would shut my eyes, I could play for hours, and I used to fantasize when I'd play piano, I'd fantasize that there were talent scouts from cars that would drive past Wyndham, because Wyndham was in the sticks, it was nowhere. And my dream was like to go to New York someday, even though I had no idea what New York was, you know. I, it's, maybe I psychically kind of knew what might come someday. So I used to fantasize that there were talent scouts and cars that had machinery that could hear inside of homes and that they were listening to me. So I was always full of fantasy in my music. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you're a child, you experience disappointment for the first time, mm -hmm. sadness, romantic love maybe, um, 
intensity, fear, all the emotions you have are the most intense in your childhood because that's the first experience you have. So many things touch you then, so I always go back to that. I was pleased to learn that I was not the only one with a musical fantasy. In fact, most musicians invent a happy ending fairy tale of some kind to keep them motivated. Maria Schneider's came true. When I interviewed our next guest in April of 1996, I recall thinking, if a bull in a china shop could play the saxophone and write jazz arrangements, his name would be Dave Pell. Starting out as a member of a relief band, Mr. Pell rose in the ranks through talent mixed with extreme confidence and a bit of intentional clumsiness, as we'll hear in this excerpt. Relief band is um, uh, the the main attraction's got to go out and get uh, a twenty minute break, and they don't want not like now they play records or right. something like that. There you had to have a live band on stage, mm -hmm. and usually a different kind of band so that you could do the rumba. Like we had a Latin band playing a Four Brothers type uh, mm -hmm. tenor book, you know, and then we play yeah. Freddie Martin style, and then we played Latin, and we do this, and then the other bands, whoever the name band was at the Palladium, which was every four or five weeks, uh, we just sat there and said hello to the guys, and yeah. you know, it was great. It was, but I stayed in L.A. I didn't have to go on the road, mm -hmm. so I really enjoyed it. Now, and then you went with Tony Pastor later on. No, I was with Tony Pastor getting That's there. Time. I see. Uh, and the story about Tony Pastor, I get to California and I say, "Gee, Tony, this is great. Goodbye. I'm quitting." <laughs> He says, you can't leave me in L.A. This is the wilderness. There's no guys. I can't get a guy to leave California. They all want to come here. I said, goodbye. <laughs> and so he said, well, stay with me till we leave California, and then you can quit. So six weeks later, I left the band. But I had fun with Tony because uh, I'd rush. I'd run out to the microphone to beat him to his own solos because he didn't really like to play, but I, the only way I could get to play was to be a cocky <laughs> kid and run up to the mic all the time, and he's ready to play, and I'm up there playing already. So, sorry, Tony. It you know. sounds like you didn't lack for self-confidence oh, or no, something. Oh, no, I was a smart-ass. <laughs> terrible. I was just terrible. But that's, that's kind of the thing that you have to do. Uh, it's, it's almost like the, the sidemen on the band that keeps watching the leader and watching all the mistakes he makes. Uh-huh and all the wrong things he does, because in the back of his mind, I'm going to be a leader someday, and yeah. I ain't never going to yeah. put myself. I mean, Les Brown, I had a great time with Les's band, and played on every tune. You know, I had a great, great book to play, and we had Fagenquist and all the good players. And I remember, uh, as I went out every time to, to play a solo out front, we just didn't stand up, we'd go out front, showbiz. And uh, I remember kicking over Les's horn at least once a night. Oh, I tripped. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Les, I'll, I'll fix it later. Well, uh, he didn't play too well. And we didn't like him playing in the band with us because the saxophone sounded so good. Yeah. But when he played, he played awful. And so if his horn didn't work, ah, the hell with it, he wouldn't play. And, and Les, after years and years, he finally figured out I was doing it on purpose. You know, I'm so clumsy, Les, I'm sorry. But I was kicking over his horn so he wouldn't play, you know. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Terrible indeed, but excellent jazz lore. The only musician I have met that could match Dave Pell for sheer chutzpah is Terry Gibbs, a human spark plug that has been burning up the vibes for close to seven decades. 
Terry Gibbs was a pure bebopper and rose to every musical occasion, except when the king of bebop, Charlie Parker, better known as Bird, showed up on one of his gigs. Terry was 97 years old at the time of our second interview, but he could still recall the intimidating presence of the legendary Charlie Parker as he blew his alto sax three feet away from him. I understand that Charlie Parker, um, in order to borrow money, would sometimes promise to show up on your gig. Is that correct? Yes. He did show up on my job. Uh, this is when I was just learning bebop, which unfortunately he showed up and scared the hell out of me. First of all, he would, as you walked out of Birdland, he'd be standing there and he'd say, uh, give me a quarter or give me a half an hour or whatever. That was a lot of money those days, you know. And, 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 and musicians would say, I don't have it. That they say, I'll, where are you playing tomorrow? I'll come sit in with you. They give them the money. And people would, where would he get out? Bird's going to come sit in. He'd never show up. He didn't even know who you were. But there was, I had a great rapport with Bird. The first thing I did was tell him off. After he asked me for some money, I said, that you're the greatest musician in the world, begging and all that. I really let him know it. And then he said, we well, play tomorrow. I said, over oh, George Georgie Tin Pan Alley. And, and, and I gave him the dollar. I, I, I did he wasn't going to show up. Place was packed when I got to work. I, we were the first 16 bars of Out of Nowhere, the song. And I'm playing in LA, and all of a sudden, he, he walks in with his plastic horn around him. And he came in and played the next 16 bars of Out of Nowhere. And he's standing next to me now. He asked me, would I rather follow him playing and then stop playing or fight Mike Tyson? Mike Tyson, one punch, I'm out, that's the end of it. Here I gotta stand here while he plays 30 choruses and and, and, and when I come in and play, I'll try to play anything he just played, you know? What I did on the 30th bar, it was always a 32 bar chorus. On the 30th bar, because I knew I wanted to see he was going into another chorus, I bent down to tie my shoe. I was on the floor. When he started to play more, I got up, Stood there for 30 bars. When the kid closed to the 30 bar, I went down and tied my shoe. And then once again, then I loosened my vibes. I tied, I don't know what I was doing, but after about 16 courses on the floor, my piano player, who was didn't think he was even gonna follow him, because I would come in next, got panicked out and he looked at me on the floor like he's having a nervous break and he says, I know what you're doing. If you think I'm going to follow him, you're crazy. He, he was, we, we were also a bunch of scared little kids. You know, then Charlie Parker was so far ahead of everybody. It's time to hear from two significant women in the jazz world. First up, a personality who had a different view of the bandstand, a jazz fan. When Jean Bach passed away in May of 2013, the New York Times described her as a lifelong jazz zealot. Jean could scat classic saxophone solos and constantly spoke out against segregation in the entertainment world. She also produced the award-winning documentary, a Great Day in Harlem, based on the iconic 1958 jazz assemblage photo published in Esquire magazine. 
Jean was particularly enamored of Duke Ellington and his music, as we'll hear in an excerpt from our October 1995 interview. Following Jean will be another Ellington admirer, Margaret Marion McPartland. A British transplant, she received this review early in her career from the noted jazz critic Leonard Feather. She is English, white, and a woman. Three hopeless strikes against her. Marion showed him, fashioning a lengthy career as a pianist, composer, and host of the NPR series Piano Jazz. You'll hear Margaret, better known as Marion, reminisce about the reaction of her aristocratic family in regards to her career choice. I met Ellington the night I graduated from prep school, and that was in June of 1936. Mm -hmm. And uh, my date, we were all dressed up in party clothes, you know, it was graduation night. He said, where do you want to go? Well, Ellington was playing a two-week engagement at the Congress Hotel in Chicago. So I said, I'd love to go and hear Ellington, because I'd had all his records. So we got there, and he, my date said, uh, should we ask him over to have a glass of champagne? I said, oh, wow, yes, let's do. So he came over, he stood at the table, and he said, uh, Miss Enzinger, what are your plans? Oh, for, first I said, I'm so thrilled to meet you. I said, you and Stravinsky are my two favorite composers. He said, I'm jealous of Stravinsky. Oh. I mean, he was like this all uh -huh. the time, you know. Yeah. So I told him I was going to Vassar. So he said, oh, well, that's not far from where I live. We must get together. Now, make sure we do. I said, yes. So I got to school, and my roommate was we were getting acquainted, and I brought all these recordings with me, and I said, we'll have music. Well, she said, well, that's great while we study. So then I told her about meeting Ellington. She said, well, I hope you're going to take him up on it. I said, oh, Smith, how can I? She said, I'll bet you you haven't got nerve to do it. And I said, uh, yeah, what's the bet? She said, well, if you don't go, you have to give me this cashmere sweater. And I said, what if I do go? She said, then you'll have had the experience. You'll win. <laughs> so that was enough. I, can you believe he was in the phone book? So um, I just went, it was about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, and it really tells you about innocence. You know, it really pays to be innocent. You just walk into these things. It was heaven. And I knocked on the door, and this elderly gentleman came to the door. Yes, can I help you? It was Ellington's father. I said, he told me to, uh, you know, come by. He said, fine, I'll, I'll go get him do be seated. Well, I mean, the curtains were drawn. It was like midnight, you know, in there, because it was to them midnight. It was very dark in the in the living room. They were kind of night owls. That's it. Yeah. So Ellington finally came in in stunning sulk of robe and very courtly. How lovely to see you. I, I said, well, you did say to come by. I look like, well, I, I can't say co-ed because we only had girls and boys schools then, but you know, I had the little bowler hat and the polo coat and the little <laughs> white gloves and everything. I was interviewed by somebody from the Black Entertainment Network. She came to my house and she said, you don't look like a jazz groupie that would be following the band. <laughs> well, boy, I was. I was the first jazz groupie. I mean, I'd hear Ellington was playing in Rock Island, Illinois, and if I wasn't doing anything that day, I'd get on the train and just go hear the band. So I heard him quite a lot. But then we would go out afterward and you didn't go out in Midtown Chicago. You went to the South Side. There was a drugstore out there called the uh, the Ritz Drugstore, and they had something like 27 flavors of ice cream. So we'd all sit around the whole band and Ellington, and and we'd be dipping in each other's ice cream, very unsanitary. Um, 
Ellington coined a word, uh, seagulling, and he said that's what you do when you steal someone else, someone else's plate. Uh -huh. And he said uh, they had their own, as you know, private car. They had to travel that mm -hmm. way because they couldn't stay in hotels. And uh, I think they had their own diner, too. And he said at uh, mealtime, the master seagull doesn't order anything for dinner. He just orders a service plate, and he just <laughs> walks down the aisle and says, what do you have that goes good with my dinner <laughs> helps himself? One last thing I'd like to ask, when, when your parents found out that you were going oh. to leave school to play in a vaudeville act, can I guess that they were not really in favor of this? Oh, well, I didn't really know I was going to do that. I had gone to this piano player, Billy Mayo, thinking he would give me a few pointers about jazz and, and I mean I was so stupid he wasn't really a jazz player so much as a popular player mm -hmm. but of course he did play good chords and good harmony and everything and rhythm and I didn't know that he was starting this four piano group and I guess I impressed him enough that he hired me right then and of course anyway they were um, shocked and, and my father offered me a thousand pounds if I wouldn't go. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, I'm, no, I, I want to go. And of course I did go. And that, I'm sure that they must have, uh, there must have been the terrible scenes in the family. I mean, I didn't realize until years later how awful that would be to, to my family. Yeah. And Anyway, and did they ever have the opportunity to see you doing your thing? Unfortunately, yeah. they didn't. One of my, um, he wasn't really an uncle, he was a second cousin who was the mayor of Windsor, mm -hmm. Sir Cyril Dyson. He and his wife came over, they had a convocation of mayors or something like that. He came to the Hickory House and he really looked appalled. And after the set, he said to me, Margaret, does your father know what you're doing? <laughs> it was like it was like I was oh, playing in a nice. brothel or something. No and I said, well, I'm only playing, you know, I'm not, because I was sitting in the center of the bar and they had all these bottles of booze all around the, the bar. It wasn't the most elegant spot, but it was a great jazz place. Yeah. So, but I always loved that. But no, they didn't see me, but they, they read a lot of write-ups. Um, and I suppose they, were, they might have been proud of me, but mm -hmm. I think they were sort of mystified. Like, why would she want to do that when she could have settled down and got married to a lawyer or a doctor or something yeah. like that? Because what I did was not considered nice by uh -huh. them. It was definitely not nice. Well. We're very glad you did. Oh, I'm very glad to, to, Monk. We'll wrap up with a brief anecdote from another British pianist who immigrated to the States. Derek Smith relates his experience with a New York City musicians' union as he sought to break into the jazz scene. First of all, you know, I, I come to New York not knowing a soul, but I found out where the musicians' union was. And, and you've got to remember that when I was in England, they talked about American musicians' union as being so powerful on that you know that's great union and they'll take care of it so i went straight down there and the guy heard my english accent he said you're from england i said yeah he said 
you can't join. I said, what do you mean? Oh, he said, right. there's a feud between the two unions, the English union and the American unions. Over there, they won't allow American musicians to join, so you can't join. Oh. And, he, and he put the thing down in my face. I said, how do I make a living? He said, that's your problem. Mm. So, but he did say, you can come back in six months. If you prove that you've oh. been in New York for six months, then you can join. So I got a job in insurance. <laughs> I read that, that you sold insurance. <laughs> no, I, I didn't sell insurance. Oh. I showed up every day yeah. at an office. Uh -huh. And uh, luckily, I didn't do too much damage. I didn't ruin the company, but I really had very little aptitude for mm -hmm. it. I, I looked kind of busy and uh, mm -hmm. went through the motions. But six months to the day, I left and went back to the union. And that's another story. Same guy was there. He said, you again? <laughs> so I, said, I said, yes, and now you know, I really need it. So he said, well, you've got to take an audition. I said, fine, you know, I've, I've been practicing. So he said, go in there. And uh, I had to follow up the lady in. There was a lady. So, and she was taking the audition on maracas, you believe this? She, but she was a singer, and so, but she wanted to join the musicians' union, so she had. Uh -huh. so she, she was auditioning on maracas. On maracas. Right, on maracas. So he <laughs> said, next. So I go into this room, there's the piano. And he says, what's that instrument over there? I said, what are you talking about? He says, piano. He says, you're in. If I go upstairs and pay you $100. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the piano and I started, I started roaring. He said, that's very nice. Go upstairs. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> When I reflect on the 400-plus interviews we have conducted with the Phileas Jazz Archive, one thing I can say for sure, the life of a full-time musician is rarely boring. The constant search for gigs, the travel to them, as well as the interaction with an ever-changing roster of fellow musicians and demanding fans create scenarios that are far more interesting than any author could create. We'll hear another set of Jazz Life Tales in Episode 8, including anecdotes from Joe Wilder, Phil Woods, Ruth Brown, and yours truly. Until then, I'll see you on the flip side.